Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hey everybody, this is Josh. So I strive to get the Emerald episodes out about one per month. I think most people know that, that the pace that I generally like to work at is once per lunar cycle. And for me, that generally seems to be a pretty good pace because it means I can really dive in and focus on an episode and give it the post-production time it deserves and the musical consideration it deserves. And the episodes as they are these days, these kind of sonic journeys require about that amount of time to really create and realize in the way I want them realized. This month has been a little bit weird. First of all, the last episode that came out, the episode on grief, there were some what I could call like personal residual shockwaves that came through that episode um, in which I found I needed to take just a little bit of a breath after that episode. Yeah. Because the episode went deep and it went into territory that I know that we're all feeling and we're all familiar with. And afterwards, I didn't feel like I could just kind of rush out and do another episode. I felt like I needed to take a couple of weeks to let it really to let it reverberate and to let myself clear a little bit before diving into any other new creative territory. And then I had an in-person immersion here in New Mexico with some people who were taking a course with me. And in the midst of all that, my entire family of four got COVID. So (laughs) yeah, it's been a bit of an ordeal. Those who take my courses know that I like to talk about ordeal and the ritual of ordeal and how ordeal cracks us open into new spaces. And so I definitely feel like I'm in one of those spaces right now. And it's a good place to be and everything's fine. We've all recovered really well. And and now I'm off to Australia to teach an in-person immersion there. So the upshot of all this, as far as the Emerald goes, is that the schedule of one episode per month is not happening this month. There's going to be a little bit more of a pause while I give the next episode the time and space and energy that it deserves. So what I thought I'd do in the meantime is reissue an episode that came out about a year and a half ago. And since that time, the listenership to the Emerald has almost doubled. So I know that there's a lot of people who have not heard this episode yet. And I'm re-releasing this one because it's so very central to really what you could call like the core of the work. It's an episode called How Trance States Shape the World. And in this episode, it's really looking at the absolutely pivotal central role that trance has played in cultures and societies since the beginning, to the point that some anthropologists have even called trance the main need of the ceremonial animal that is the human being. So human beings are ceremonial creatures, and at the heart of ceremony, at the heart of ritual lives trance. And so the accessing of trance states, the ritualizing of trance states, the building up of structures around trance states is something that has been central to human cultures and societies forever. I think those of you who know the work know that this is something that I talk about all the time right? Well, this is the episode that really kind of crystallized 
all of that talk into one condensed piece. And this piece traces the primacy of trance through cultures and then also looks very deeply at what happens when cultures lose their access to ecstasy, when cultures forget that trance lives right at the heart of what it is to be human. And within this, what we find is that human beings always find their way to trance one way or another. We find our way to trance. We find it through the news. We find it through sporting events. We find it through theatrical events. We find it through drug intake. We will find a way to get our collective trance on. And if we don't find a way to get our collective trance on, then there are consequences. So how trance states shape the world, this is an episode that dives really deep into this subject. And I truly hope you'll enjoy it. I also want to take the opportunity to say that the support that this podcast has been receiving over the past few months is really warming my heart and our patron base is growing. And, you know, this means for me that I can devote an increasing amount of time to this podcast, which is really important. Being able to devote close to full time to this kind of work is, it's deeply rewarding. And in many ways, it's a dream come true. And it's really thanks to the growing base of listeners who have chosen to support this work that I can do this, that I can turn my attention to this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for those who are not yet patrons, this podcast relies on patronage. Patronage starts at as little as $6 a month. And for this, you get access to our Emerald Podcast Study Group, twice a month, lively, engaging conversations with mythic seekers, exploring the topics that we explore on the podcast. And the $6 a month or $12 a month or $18 a month or $24 a month that you choose to contribute also helps me pay musicians. It helps me pay for studio time. It helps me pay for recording equipment. It helps feed my family. It helps me be able to do this work on an ongoing basis. So if you feel compelled, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Emerald Podcast. People have been inquiring about opportunities to study and beyond the Patreon study group, there is also a year-long course coming up and a journey to India to study goddess mythologies coming up. I do have to say that both of these things right now have a substantial waiting list. But if you're interested in finding out more information, please do still send us a note. Themythicbody at gmail.com is the address to send it to. And just say you're interested in upcoming offerings. There will be more things coming too, um, a couple of shorter things on the horizon as well. So if you want to stay in touch and you want to stay involved and you want to receive updates on what's upcoming for the Emerald podcast and for the mythic body and for opportunities to study with me, then yeah, definitely send us an email and we'll keep you in the loop. So thank you for the support. The support means a whole, whole lot in these mythic times. And I hope you enjoy the episode. So the other day we were having a podcast patrons call and one listener said something very interesting. He said that he'd been watching the footage of the Capitol riot on January 6th and he thought to himself, these people look like they're in a trance. And my response to this simple observation was absolutely, absolutely they were in a trance. I've seen protest trance, rally trance, political trance on many occasions. You know, the trance of the herd. Suddenly, a wave seems to sweep through the crowd, 
Ethnomusicologist Joseph Jordania recently proposed a term battle trance for this mental state, a trance when combatants don't feel fear or pain when they lose their individual identity and acquire a collective identity. And if you watch footage of a Trump rally, you're taking a master class on group trance induction. You listen closely to the speech, the inflection, the rhythmic repetitive cadence over long periods of time. What from the outside might appear as a strange stream of consciousness monologue, this has a deep cumulative effect over several hours. And you add to it the repetitive reinforcing of group identity tinged with emotional charge. And this, whether Trump really knows it or not, is exactly how to get people into a trance. I've heard people talking about the strange engagements they've had with people who they've lost to QAnon, like talking, they say, to someone who's in a trance. And others have described recovering from QAnon as waking up from a trance. And it's important, before we start feeling superior to all those entranced masses out there, it's really worth looking at how often we're seeking trance states ourselves. Take a walk down any city street and look at the sight of people staring into their phones, hunched over a glowing box that seems to draw their attention into some kind of thoughtless rapture. That's a type of trance. Tell me that when we stare for hours at a glowing screen that is programmed specifically and algorithmically to capture our attention, that we're doing so, you know, solely because of the ease of the user interface or the valuable information it's providing us. Tell me that when we scroll on Instagram or TikTok, we're doing it because, you know, we're really interested in seeing what our friends are up to. Well, maybe that's part of it, but really we're doing it because it's entrancing. It draws us out of our ordinary waking consciousness, it eliminates discursive thought, which is key, and it allows us to receive right from a luminous source. This is trance. Trance. The state where we transcend the relentless babble in our heads and reach instead a zone of simply acting and doing a zone where insights seem to pour forth, where our attention is rapt, where we see things more clearly, where there's a flow. In this state, the human being becomes permeable, porous, open to the world around them, more prone to direct revelation and less driven by the day-to-day -day analytical mind. And that can sound like a lot of things. It can sound good. It can sound kind of dangerous too, right? The suggestibility, the permeability... The loss of one's discrete identity as a rational cognitive thinker, it makes it sound like we should maybe protect ourselves from this whole trance thing, not get duped into a trance state. And of course, these days, you look around at all of us, and in our own ways, we are getting duped into trance states. <laughs> so it's not so simple as don't go into a trance, or trance is bad. Because trance, it turns out, is utterly essential to the experience of being human. When I say essential, I mean that attainment of the trance state, and you've heard me say this before on this podcast, attainment of the trance state has been such a primary driving force for human beings that some anthropologists have even called it the main need of the ceremonial animal that is the human being. Trance rituals have been found in every culture that anthropologists have ever studied. And what does that mean in practice? It means, hmm, how many right now are singing over and over a holy name and letting the repetitive invocation draw them into a space where the whole world hums with them, 
How many murmurous mantras are sounding, resounding? It means how many feet are pounding on the drumskin of the earth right now? It means that in the back streets of Salvador right now the dancers are trembling, trembling. It means at the foot of the holy mountain on full moons there are devotees in holy swoon. It means that right now in the sacred groves of Nigeria the priestesses of Ifa are looking upon the world through veils of glistening beads, like gazing through honey. It means that the trail runners are finding thresholds and limits and breakthroughs and flows. The climbers are in seamless living communion with granite walls. It means that people are feeling spirit in the Mississippi churches. It means that far, far back into the dawn of the Paleolithic, our hunter ancestors found that this state gave them the focus necessary to track a herd, to light a fire, to walk in a way that brought good insights, that this state was utterly essential for survival. In his book, The Hunter's Trance, Carl von Essen summarizes, quote, Over the thousands of centuries of modern homo's development, alertness was a prime necessity. That awareness can still result in a vibrant state in which all senses become more acute and time and space merge into a feeling of unity. The hunter's unfocused alertness, his trance, is similar to the attentive form of meditation practice in Zen Buddhism. The word trance means precisely what the Latin roots say, to move across, to pass over to the object. One's whole being is directed towards a quarry. One is alert with universal attention, aware of all yet somehow filtering out what is extraneous or irrelevant. So essential is this state that often access to it is guarded and ritualized, that revealing its protocols and practices in some cultures meant death. So essential is this state that we pay our musicians and athletes and movie stars millions for taking us into it, or gladly cough up money into the church coffers for the warm glow they offer us. Access to this state has not only driven the history of what we call spirituality or religion, but many other human pursuits as well. Athletes revel in it. Roger Bannister, the first person recorded running a four-minute mile, and note I say recorded running a four-minute mile because I guarantee you plenty of our Paleolithic ancestors ran four-minute miles. Roger Bannister said, quote, No longer conscious of my movement, I discovered a new unity of nature. I had found a new source of power and beauty, a source I never dreamt existed. You've probably felt this. After an hour of running, Von Essen said, there comes an altered state of consciousness very similar to meditation, prayer, some drug experiences, dreaming. Quote, some modern psychologists and others have created terms such as peak experience, flow, relaxation response for the moments that often appear related to the exalted and spiritual encounters that may be called mystical. From athletes and others come the groove, the high, the rush, the zone. Believe it or not, this state has even been vital for scientists. Among modern philosophers and scientists, Yulia Ustinova reminds us in her book on altered states of consciousness in ancient Greece, more than a few arrived at their seminal ideas in dreams or in trance-like reverie. Trance states are found in patriarchies and matriarchies, among hunter-gatherers and agriculturalists. Trance practitioners are men and women and children. I've seen, personally, children go into states of deep trance in rural India. 
Among the Kung populations of southern Africa, Richard Katz reports more than a third of all Kung routinely and without drugs altered their state of consciousness. Trance is normative and normalized, essential and necessary. The fine bristles of alterity permeate our world, grow like elk fur on the skin of the world, crackle like lightning in the skies of our world, resound like thunder in the hollows of our world. Deep indigo purple in the void of our world. Honeycomb dripping in the skull of our world. The light that day in the heart of the world. And the mortal limit of the self was loosed, as Lord Tennyson said, and passed into the nameless as a cloud melts into heaven. So trance is central and essential. It's how relationships are established and reinforced between individuals, communities, and the greater cosmos. It's how interconnectivity is actualized. It's how what is needed to be shed is shed, and what is needed to take root takes root, and how what is needed to be fostered is fostered. It's how individuals come to know who they are within the great schema, and it is how communities heal. All of this happens through ritualized trance states. Yet, modern Western society for many years, as ethnomusicologist Judith Becker and many others have pointed out, has marginalized trance. In the West, Becker says, quote, there are no reputable trance states. Trance is frowned upon, pathologized by both institutionalized Western religion and even still to this day by Western science. Trance practitioners have been labeled savage, primitive, less than human, specifically because they practice trance. Women prone to visionary trance states were burned as witches by the church and institutionalized as hysterics by psychiatrists. As recently as the 1980s, women in traditional indigenous trance rites were labeled hysterical by anthropologists. And even today, there's a disturbing tendency in the neo-embodiment world to associate trance, rapture, ecstasy, and intuitive vision with trauma in a way that dismisses the validity of these states. Yet, in traditional cultures that practice trance, there is nothing subversive, out on a limb, dangerous, dissociative, or questionable about trance. Trance is an essential part of how societies express, organize, reinforce bonds, and establish relation. Trance is necessary. I'll go into the long history of pathologizing trance in great detail in the second part of this episode, but let's just say that there are consequences when a society has no context in which to address the human need for trance. A society in which one of the fundamental states that has made humans human becomes taboo. What consequences? Well, on the one hand, trance itself becomes untethered. There are no protocols around it. So anyone can call themselves an intuitive. Everyone's a shaman, even apparently the guy in buffalo horns prancing about the U.S. Capitol. There's no accountability. So you get spiritual movements that are unanchored from contextual reality. People trusting their intuition without a lineage or tribe or circle to smack them down when they go astray and drifting into deep delusion. And this is deeply evident in the New Age embrace of QAnon. 
But on the other hand, the blanket dismissal of all mystic states, the deriding of intuitives and intuitive means of interacting with the world as less than or pathological or dangerous, this doesn't work out very well either. For to dismiss mystic experience is to dismiss humanity itself. The longing we have for trance is deep. And when we pathologize trance states, ecstatic states, intuitive states, we play into a fractured and fraught history that is deeply intertwined with colonialism. For, as Barbara Ehrenreich expresses in her book Dancing in the Streets, trance tends to be populist. Trance tends to be what the folk are up to, and the collective unifying power of trance tends to be threatening to colonial power structures. Trance tends to be the domain in many cultures of women, and the pathologizing of trance in the West follows a long line of pathologizing intuition, ecstasy, and rapture as female flaws, a trend that reached its pinnacle with the neurologist Jean-Martin Charcot, who coined the term hysteria and saw, quote, mystical ecstasy as a gender-specific neurotic manifestation. Yet, Trance always finds ways to express, and people find ways to get their trance on. Because we need trance. We need states of rapture. The question isn't, should we eliminate trance or somehow get beyond it or file it under all things superstitious or label it as some type of trauma-induced coping mechanism? The question is how we ritualize it, where we find it, where it leads us, what purpose it serves in our lives. Is it valued? Is it channeled properly? Does it live in context? Does it live in a framework of accountability? Does it reinforce shared values? Does it lead us to a deep sense of interconnectedness and a harmonious relation, even as it bestows its insights and floods us with its gifts? When we understand trance as a central human drive, we can start to regularize and ritualize our own longings for trance we can maybe notice why we're reaching for the luminous screen at that moment, or why the news anchor has us spellbound, or why that one sight on the internet keeps us in rapt attention, or why the charismatic spiritual leader's voice soothes us, and instead we can seek the state of flow in ways that reinforce interconnectedness. We can look deeper at the precious place that ritual holds in our lives, and how that ritual can connect us to our communities, to the world at large, and to our own minds. You've heard me talk a lot on this podcast about the precious value that human beings have placed on states of rapture. Today we're going to go deeper into these states and get specific on a level that maybe we haven't yet so far. What these trance states are, what are their history, how they've been pathologized, and how trance states are still pathologized today. Because... The trance state is a treasure, a pearl of great price, like the light in Traherne's afternoon field that drew him into rapture. It's something wondrous, something to which we've sung many hymns, for which we've shed many tears, for which we've shook many rattles, and for which we've ran many, many, many miles. We've fasted for it, sweat for it, broken guitar strings for it, pierced ourselves for it, even walked across fire for it. It's easy to say that human history has been shaped by great ambitions, by technological advancements, by scientific discovery, by military conquest, and there's truth to all this. But I say that human history has been shaped just as deeply by trance. 
It has been shaped by states of consciousness that we have found and then ritually seek again and again and again until we find them once more. We soar, we soar on the wings of trance. How trance states shape the world today on the Emerald. It's the fall of 2017, and my wife and I are in India, just outside of Udaipur. And it's the last day of Navaratri, the nine-day festival of the Great Mother Goddess. It's been a festive nine days as we traversed Gujarat and western Rajasthan. Lots of garba dancing and late-night celebration and drumming and singing. And now it's the last day, and we're on our way to the airport. And it's a day when these great effigies of the Mother Goddess that have been made for the festival adorned and celebrated and sung to over the course of the nine days, these massive effigies are transported to bodies of water to be ritually submerged. So we're passing all these flatbed trucks carrying vibrant multi-limbed goddesses, and there are crowds of people clamoring around the trucks and sound systems blaring devotional music and all the usual vibrancy that surrounds the mother goddess. We stop the car to go check out the scene, and shortly after we arrive, I notice a man being escorted by two other men towards the effigy of the goddess. And they've placed a thin red cloth over this man's head like a veil or a shield, and he's having difficulty walking on his own. He looks like he's swooning as he walks. I've seen this before with the cloth on the head. I turn to the man next to me and ask, he's in a trance? He's feeling the goddess? And the man replies, yes. Sundari is coming. Sundari is the name of the goddess, and it means the beautiful one. It's short for Tripura Sundari, the beautiful one of the three worlds. The beautiful one who transcends past, present, future. The beautiful state of unified consciousness. The beautiful one is coming. So to feel trance is to feel the goddess, is to feel the beautiful place where past, present, and future are one. I recognize the signs of the man in trance immediately because I've seen it all over India. Last February, I was at Sri Rangam Temple with a group I was leading, and we're at a rooftop viewpoint checking out the view of the towers of the temple. From far off in the temple courtyard, I hear a series of high-pitched chirps and shrieks. Trance, my friend Vasant exclaims. And that's how common and integrated trance is in that part of the world. That's how familiar its protocols are. I ask him if he can stay with the group, and I run down the temple steps to see, because I look for these expressions of ecstasy. I want to see how this language of trance, which is so central to so many cultures, reveals itself. What are its nuances, its permutations? How does it live on, even in a world that might question its necessity? So I've deliberately sought trance out. And if you look for trance in India, you will find it everywhere. I've seen village rituals where men, women, and children all plunge into deep trance, shaking, 
convulsing. I've seen performative trance rituals that involve pain and fire and piercing. I've seen it manifest more gently, too, like a wave of fine honey passing over a crowd of devotees late at night, a trance similar to something we've probably all felt at a really good concert. There are gradations, levels, permutations, vicissitudes to trance. Here's what Nikolai Frisvold, scholar of the African Ifa traditions, said about the gradations of trance possession. For Ifa, possession starts in the mind. It's a process that starts uh, from within and goes outside. By enchantments, prayers, songs, all this, we are, or uh, musical instruments, we are provoking something inside, in our soul, in our being, that is resonating with something outside. So the first uh, state of possession is uh, is actually the meditative and contemplative state. It is what if I call uh, lai lai is a return to origin. You can experience this as uh, almost a, a drowsy openness of uh, of your mind, and this is the first kind of state of possession that is very common in uh, Ifa because uh, very often we are using very long time uh, with the prayers, with the songs, and this induces this this kind of light trance that. Uh, give us access to the same realm as the dreams. So, and this almost a lucid, drowsy state and dreams are considered as states of possession. But also in uh, another facet of possession that people don't speak very much about is uh, is how when you are, uh, let's say, you are at a waterfall, you are calling uh, Oshun, that is the the Orisha, the spirit of, of the waterfall, you are feeding honey, you are feeding uh, orbi, orobo, th- things that are calling the spirits. And then the nature enters into possession. I mean, the fish jumping, the, uh, the insects, the birds started to behave in unusual ways around you. These forms of uh, possession, I think they are the most sublime because it touches you in, in such impactful way that you can't do anything else than feel a certain sense of being merged with this miraculous moment. So how do we define trance? It's an interesting word, trance. It means, of course, to cross over, to cross from normal subjective experience. And it's interesting because it's used to loosely categorize what are a very broad range of experiences. So the word trance can refer to the still-wrapped focus of the Zen meditator. It can also refer to the passionate, dynamic movement of the candomblé dancer, the convulsions of the French convulsionnaire, the southern black churchgoers feeling the spirit. Check out the movie Amazing Grace, which is old footage of Aretha Franklin singing at her childhood church, and you will see no two ways about it, trance. For some, it has been viewed as a state almost akin to sleepwalking, you know, oh my gosh, what happened? It was like I was in a trance. And then... Others have suggested that what we call normal waking consciousness is the real sleepwalking, and it is in trance that we come closest to actually being awake. As Anne Harrington says in her History of Trance, quote, Influential humanistic and transpersonal psychologists like Charles Tart and Arthur Dykeman began insisting that everyday consciousness might be among the less interesting and valuable ways of engaging with reality. Indeed, Dykeman became well known for arguing that most people's everyday life was lived in a kind of trance, and that practices like meditation contributed to a greater awareness and awakening. End quote. So I'll just say here that this isn't an episode on the neurobiology of trance. Is trance neurobiological? Sure. And that doesn't lessen or greaten its importance. When critics of spirituality do a 
gotcha and say, see, religious epiphanies are just brain chemistry. Well, that's fairly one-dimensional thinking. Everything humans see or do is neurobiological, so the fact that some neurobiological states would be enshrined as sacred is utterly natural. And whether or not you feel that those states are the result of external natural forces acting on a person, or solely internal forces, or whether those two things can really be separated at all, the sacredness of certain states of consciousness can be understood by everyone. And that's what we're going to look at. How cultures have viewed trance states as sacred, and what are the permutations when we don't. So, some have suggested a delineation between states in which the practitioner is in control versus states in which they cede control entirely. Anthropologist Erica Bourguignon, for example, who rocked the scientific community by suggesting that trance, which is common to all cultures, might not be pathological after all, introduced a distinction in anthropology between two kinds of trance that she called trance and possession trance. Quote, for Bourguignon, trance was the term to be applied to certain altered states of consciousness that are experienced as being under voluntary control of the individual, whereas possession trance is the term to be applied to other distinctly different altered states of consciousness that are experienced as being largely involuntary. So again, it's a spectrum. It's a range of experience held together by a few defining qualities. And what are the defining qualities that apply to all states of trance? So Judith Becker said it like this. Quote, I define trance as a bodily event characterized by strong emotion, intense focus, the loss of the strong sense of self, usually enveloped by a cessation of the inner language. Trance is an event that accesses types of knowledge and experience which are inaccessible in non-trance events and which are felt to be ineffable, not easily described or spoken of. <laughs> And there's a few key points here. Intense focus, cessation of the inner language, and that one is really key. The babble in the head stops. We're not thinking, hey, what do I have to grab at the store? And I can't believe that guy said that on the internet. And oops, I forgot to have a successful career. Discursive thought ceases. And for those who spend a lot of time steeped in mental chatter, and I don't know about you, but I sometimes do, <laughs> that's a very attractive proposition. Our small self and concerns dissolve into something greater. We feel one with the world around us. And we see into the nature of things. We learn things. We gain insight. And this is key too. From Black Elk to Joan of Arc to the run you had last week in which you saw clearly what you needed to do about a certain situation in your life, trance brings information. As William James says in his list of categories of mystical states of consciousness, these states have a, quote, noetic quality. They are states of insight into depths of truth unplumbed by the discursive intellect. So there are things in this understanding that the rational mind simply cannot know in the same way. Alfred Lord Tennyson, the poet, described it like this, quote, a kind of waking trance I have frequently had quite from boyhood, when I have been all alone. This has generally come upon me through repeating my own name two or three times to myself silently, till all at once, as it were out of the intensity of the consciousness of individuality, the individuality itself seemed to dissolve and fade away into boundless being. And this is not a confused state, but the clearest of the clearest, the surest of the surest. 
utterly beyond words, where death was an almost laughable impossibility, and the loss of personality, if so it were, seeming no extinction, but the only true life. Not a confused state, but the clearest of the clearest. And as he goes on to say, quote, There is no delusion in the matter. It is no nebulous ecstasy, but a state of transcendent wonder associated with absolute clearness of mind. And this sense of states that deliver clear insight, that are the clearest of clear states, that knowledge is revealed in these states, this is vital to understanding the role that trance plays in numerous cultures. As Von Essen says, many who have described mystical experiences, particularly in nature, repeatedly remark upon seeing things more clearly than ever seen before, or of seeing something as it truly was. You know that feeling, out in nature, seeing something as it truly is. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air, and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. I am nothing. I see all what Goethe called the oceanic feeling, the, quote, spontaneous expansion of consciousness through which natural phenomena acquire an unaccustomed depth, become charged with meaning, seem to lose their separateness from both each other and their observer, and appear in all their intense relatedness. This state, as you've heard me say before, was the regular stomping ground of Paleolithic hunters. It was necessary, essential, it was brought about by the conditions of the hunt themselves, long periods of deprivation and exertion. Von Essen describes dreamlike moments occurring during the transcendental concentration of the hunt. Quote, the hunter's trance is thus a total mental and physical concentration whereby extraneous signals, internal or external, are quenched or diverted, enabling the psyche of the hunter to perceive his quarry and its world with a supernormal alertness. Those who've experienced long, extreme exposures to nature know this trance state very well. You can feel a taste of it the next time you hike up a hill. Or you can feel it like Lucien Devise did clinging to the ridge line of Annapurna at 25,000 feet up. Quote, Space, time, fear, suffering no longer exist. Everything then becomes quite simple. As on the crest of a wave or in the heart of a cyclone, we are strangely calm. Not the calm of emptiness, but the heart of action itself. Thankfully, most of us don't have to dangle ourselves off of Himalayan glaciers to feel this treasured state. Eugen Harrigal described it while training in archery, quote, The soul is brought to the point where it vibrates of itself in itself. A serene pulsation. And Nabokov even felt it while chasing butterflies. Quote, This is ecstasy, and behind ecstasy is something else which is hard to explain. It is like a momentary vacuum into which rushes all that I love, a sense of oneness with sun and stone.
a momentary vacuum into which rushes all that I love. Hunting, climbing, running, extended exposure to nature, long periods of intense focus, these are all ways to the precious state of trance. And after the long focus time in the wild comes the return to the comfort of the fire, and then the story. And the story is for trance, too. If you've ever listened to a story told by the right kind of storyteller, the one with just the right glint in their eye, the one who has you riding along every ripple of their voice, you know, the Martin Shaws, the ones that have you feeling the horripilation of the skin as the characters take that first step into the dark fairy woods. The youngest daughter steps into the wood of growling bears and watching eyes and illuminated firebirds. Stories are for trance. Group repetition is for trance. Singing is for trance. Music is for trance. From the Vinana Bhairava Tantra, the yogin who relishes music and song to the extent that he, she merges with it becomes filled with unparalleled happiness, attains heightened awareness, and experiences oneness with the divine. And as music is for trance, dancing is for trance. Exhaustion from excessive movement is one of the methods of manipulation of consciousness, says Ustinova, which is something humans have known for a very long time which is why hours and hours and hours of dancing is one of the most widespread and cherished ways to access trance in culture after culture after culture. The Kung of the Kalahari have dozens upon dozens of specific dances designed for specific states of trance. Quote, You dance, 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 says one Kung dancer. Then the Nung lifts you up in your belly and lifts you in your back, and then you start to shiver. Noom makes you tremble. It's hot. Your eyes are open, but you don't look around. You hold your eyes still and look straight ahead. But when you get into kia, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, but kia is the trance state, you are looking around because you see everything. Because you see what's troubling everybody. Noom enters every part of your body right to the tip of your feet and even your hair. This type of potency, heat, trembling, intense focus, spontaneous nosebleeds, the ability to see everything, to see what's troubling everybody, this is powerful stuff, right? And in Kung society, it's also totally normal. As Ehrenreich says, in Kung healing rituals, the achievement of trance is welcomed as a mark of spiritual status and associated with great discipline and concentration, end quote. It's not a free-for-all. It's very defined and very contextualized, which is why Becker says, quote, trance behavior within a community is highly predictable. Trancing is a learned bodily behavior acted out within a culturally pre-given narrative. Trancing is seldom spontaneous. Religious trances with music occur in particular places at particular times with fully articulated theories of what is happening. Fully articulated theories, which means that in the cultures that practice trance, there is a deep vocabulary around trance. 
There are varying potencies which are described in profound detail by the Kung Khoisan of the Kalahari. The Candomblé practitioners in Brazil have words for various types of divine swoon. Chamado do Santo, the calling of the saint. Bolar no Santo, rolling to the saint. Cair no Santo, falling to the saint. Or possession by Santos Brutus, unruly saints. The Sufi traditions have detailed understandings of types of trance triggers for trance. There's trance induced by listening to scriptures read aloud. As Ghazali describes one acolyte whose eyes were filled with tears and he fell fainting and weeping. There is in the Sufi traditions, and forgive my pronunciation here, Sama, the ecstatic ceremony that results in wajd or ecstatic trance. There is Khamra, spiritual intoxication. There is a type of solitary dhikr which uses breath control and the inner repetition of the divine name, which leads to a state of annihilation called fana, the total absorption of the self into the divine. There's also tarab, which is trance outside of religious context. And so there's a distinction between what is called entertainment trance and spiritual trance. Quote, Think not that he who throws himself upon the ground in agitation is more perfect as to trance than he who is still and does not agitate himself, says Ghazali, invoking an age-old tension between trances of deep stillness and trances of vibrant movement. And of course, once you open up the doorway to trance, you find layer upon layer upon layer. In Sufism alone, there are offshoot sects like you find all over Asia in which dervishes in profound trance pierce themselves, walk on burning coals, grasp red-hot pieces of iron without burning themselves, swallow broken glass. One Sufi sect enacts the movements of wild animals dancing and dancing until they are taken by the lion. A phrase you'll find from Persia to the Kalahari Desert, where dancers in trance transform into lions, to India, where trance mediums invoke the lion rider and speak of their own bodies as the lions being ridden. I lay down my head in sacrifice on the path which you will ride, my cavalier, sung Amir Kusrau in the 13th century. Without hesitation, I have laid the jewel of my life as a carpet for your arrival. Without hesitation, I have laid the jewel of my life as a carpet for your arrival. And your arrival is the arrival of trance. Often the trance is thought to be the result of direct contact with distinct animate beings or energies. The Vedas speak of the Gandharvas, the celestial musicians, and their tendency to grasp the consciousness of women and deliver them into states of rapture. One Sanskrit text lists eight types of possessing beings. Another refers to 18 types. One defines, quote, 21 types of seizing caused by various ethereal beings. The traditions of the Indian subcontinent are steeped in the vocabulary of trance from the Vedic traditions to the devotional traditions to the tantric traditions to the deep animist traditions. The word avesha, entrance into, is used repeatedly in the hymns of the Vedas, particularly those related to soma, the divine intoxicant. Words containing the root word graha, to be grasped or seized, are used to speak of states of deep trance. Trance is spoken of in the Indian texts as roaming, straying, riding, 
as being ridden, as taking away, as being seized. And there are distinctions again between willed trance and unwilled trance. The trance vocabulary is very rich. Avisha, bhavavesha, pravisha, graha, bhava, rasa, the sap, mood, or aesthetic texture of consciousness includes states such as adbuda rasa, the wondrous mood. The devotional texts drip with the nectars of trance. The sway of trees in the bhakti hymns evokes trance. The unctuousness of the nectars evokes trance. The consistent reference to buzzing and humming, the rhythmic lull of insects evokes trance. The dance of lover and beloved Krishna and Radha evokes trance. The jingling of Radha's anklets evokes trance. The pulsing circle dance of the gopis surrounding her evokes trance. The dark figure at the center, that glorious purple-blue-black color, the color of mulberry juice, the color of slipping into a deep dream, the color of profound meditation, the color of trance itself in many, many traditions, this evokes trance too. People ask, why is Krishna this deep purple, blue, indigo, black color? And often the answer is, well, it represents this or it represents that. And it doesn't represent something abstract. It is the color of the deep vaults of consciousness. So the object of devotion is trance consciousness. And the path to that object is through trance. And one sings and dances for hours and hours and hours and, quote, it causes bliss trembling, new birth, the spinning of the head and sleep. The devotee's limbs are elongated and he cries tears of joy, his hair stands on end, his body becomes as if seized. This bhava, this devotional bliss, this trance comes from, quote, being drawn into, absorbed into, and here's that word avesha again, music and dance. Trance pervades all Indian traditions. Each tradition in its own way is deeply concerned with consciousness alteration and deeply articulates layers and layers of consciousness and states of consciousness. What we could call the grand traditions of the Indian subcontinent are built on a bedrock of trance practices that have deep animist roots and stretch back to the Paleolithic, practices that can be found everywhere. And this is what I really want to get across about India The trance of the villages, the folk trance, is everywhere. It is normalized. It is popular. It is deliberately sought. There are modern iterations of trance that the inducing music comes from Hindi films. The snake charmer music from Nagin, the movie from the late 1980s, sends people into whirling states of trance. for it in India and you'll find it, but you've got to know what you're looking for. It'll elude you completely just how pervasive trance is. And this has to do with how we've lost the vocabulary for trance. But this trance is the bedrock of Indian village spiritual tradition. David 
Naib, who did fieldwork in Andhra Pradesh, said, quote, It appears that the number of householders subject to possession states is astonishingly high, and the phenomena occurs within families of all communities as a central component of religious life. Frederick Smith, whose phenomenal book The Self-Possessed goes into trance practices in India in greater detail than I think any scholar ever has, says this, quote, Close scrutiny leads me to conclude that forms of religious experience and expression since the time of the Rig Veda disclose much more possession than hitherto believed. And he goes on, If our knowledge of the subject were limited to the accounts of classical Indologists and other who have privileged the high, and that's in quotes, high intellectual and religious traditions while eschewing the history of actual practice, we would scarcely know of the existence of this phenomenon, much less its pervasiveness. And this gets at a couple things that are really important as we get into more modern attitudes towards trance. One is that modern religious and historical scholars have ignored trance in the study of ancient cultures like India and Greece, mostly because they had no idea that they should be looking for it, because we've lost the vocabulary for it. We don't realize how treasured this state was and is, because we don't experience it on a regular enough basis to know that this is something precious that lives at the heart of all cultures. And two is there's a tension, which I alluded to before, between the trance practices of what you can call the, quote, grand religious traditions and the trance practices of the people. There's a tension between the silence of the monasteries and the ecstasy of the villages. Some of the Buddhist texts will go a long way to make sure the reader understands that the states of consciousness being talked about in Buddhist texts are not the same as the states that the village goddess worshippers are experiencing. So, yeah, there's a tension between urban and rural trance states. There's a tension between literate and oral trance states. But the people have always practiced trance. Trance permeates the lives of the people. Trance is how the people heal. Trance is how the people grow. Trance is how the people understand their relationship with each other. Trance is how the people establish communal ties. Trance is how the people forward communal values. Trance is right at the heart of what it is to be a human being. Listen. This is the sound of the aulos, an ancient Greek instrument played by Max Brumberg, who hand-makes these traditional instruments.
The aulos is a double reed pipe that was synonymous in ancient Greece with trance. And ancient Greece was utterly steeped in trance. The trance states that permeated the peninsula were the beating heart of Greek spiritual tradition. The vast animate cosmos of the Greeks was not just a set of stories carved in marble like some far-off abstraction. It was a living cosmos that was available to be felt, interacted with in states of trance. In the dozens upon dozens of local cults that stretched across the Hellenistic world, trance reigned supreme, and trance states were elucidated, sought after, highly cherished. We tend to think of Greece as the birthplace of democracy and reason, and there's been a prevailing narrative that says Greece went from superstitious myth to reason in a straight line, and that linear journey is held up as a sign of great progress, and thankfully that narrative is being questioned now, because from start to finish, the Greek world was utterly drenched in trance. Greece didn't lose its taste for trance until the church came along and made trance illegal. There are even Greek trance rituals to this day in which devotees are possessed by orthodox saints and then dance all night and walk on coals and become immune to fire and pain. Greek history is the history of trance states. You've got to imagine that what we know of ancient Greece we know through writing. And that writing, as it does in India, as it does everywhere, tends to favor and focus on urban elite visions of the world rather than rural folk visions. And even so, the Greek writers simply cannot get away from trance. So common was trance that all the high philosophers address it multiple times. Plato's Eon is a dialogue around a question of trance possession. Aristotle speaks glowingly of the state of epoptea, in which one directly feels and beholds truth in a way that is beyond deductive reasoning, a state that is the culmination of the mystery initiations and is an utterly essential state, as he puts it, for human beings to feel. Quote, in Aristotle's view, the most important objective of the Greek initiations is to ensure that the participants undergo a certain experience, non-rational holistic comprehension that comes at the consummation of the mystery rites. This is rational Aristotle talking here about the prime importance of what in the Indian traditions would be called jnana, gnosis, direct knowing, a state of beholding, a state of rapturous listening, a direct encounter with divinely imparted exclusive knowledge, rational Aristotle extolling the importance of trance. Quote, at the final stage of the mystery initiation, there should be no more learning but experiencing, and a change in the state of mind. And he's not alone. Euripides reminds us that you really don't want to try to repress the people's need for ecstatic trance. And Socrates states that mania is, in fact, the greatest gift of the gods. Mania is trance. It's not mania as we think of mania. And again, it's a case of scholars now starting to realize the overwhelming presence and importance of certain words in the Greek histories that weren't concepts or random descriptors, but the fabric of Greek spiritual experience, felt states of being that were cultivated deliberately. Like enthusiasmos, from which we get the word enthusiasm, which didn't just mean feeling kind of peppy about something. Like, hey, I'm feeling 
really enthusiastic about the new Dune movie if it ever comes out. No, enthusiasm, entheos, to feel the spirit moving within, to be engodded, to be infused with divine energy through trance ritual. Right? Epipnoia, to be inspired, to breathe in spirit. Katakoche, to be seized by the gods in trance. Eudaimonia, which is translated as happiness sometimes, but is much closer to the state of blissful fullness of being infused with daimonia, with nature spirits, with divine force. So trance traverses the Greek mind and plays into all aspects of Greek conceptions of consciousness. For trance, of course, gave the ability to see. The famous oracle at Delphi gave her prophetic prophecies in a trance induced by fasting and breathing steamy vapors in a cave. Plato directly says that prophetic utterances have to come from a person in trance. If they come from a person who's in their rational mind, they just don't work the same way. And of course, when we think of oracles, we think of Delphi. We don't always realize that this type of mantic visioning was everywhere in Greece. Caves of prophecy, sacred sites of nymphs and gods and local nature spirits who were communed with in trance everywhere. Nymphalepsy, to be seized by a nature spirit into a state of divine intoxication, was a common occurrence. As Ustinova says, the nymphs seized people and, quote, transported them into a numinous state elevated above the normal human mental condition so they could see with mantic clarity in noetic states. The Corician cave where oracles and revelatory rapture spoke words of prophecy features inscriptions of those visitors who were seized by the nymphs, who went into trance, who heard distorted humming voices echoing in the cavern of their own minds. Socrates speaks of a poet seized by nymphs who then spoke only in hexameters poetic verses. In the cave of the Sphrygidian nymphs, locals in trance rituals became imbued with oracular powers. Mystic yogis meditating in caves is an image we have in our minds from India. Ancient Greece was teeming with such characters. The Orphic seers and bards, it is said, knocked on every door in Athens. The Bachoi of Dionysus roamed the streets of Greek cities, wearing animal hides and bearing staffs, much like their sadhu counterparts in India and crying, Eoi, Eoi, to the Lord of Trance. For how can we speak of trance without speaking of Dionysus, who was the embodiment of divine rapture itself? Dionysus, born of flashing lightning like the flashes of illumination of the trance state, whose name Bromius means the roarer, the thunderous, like the sounds so often heard in states of trance, who arrived, as Euripides tells us, as the taste of flowing milk and honey in the mouths of his devotees, roaring sounds and flowing nectars, trance as described by all cultures who have practiced it. Numerous descriptions in Greek art show Dionysian devotees in telltale signs of trance, head thrown back, bodies arched, gaze skyward, dressed in the animal skin, which is also synonymous with assuming the trance state, and always, always accompanied by devotional music. Quote, the power of music to induce mania was common knowledge. No ancient mystic rite was celebrated without dance. Whirlers, bull roarers, instruments swirled around on a string were known to be used often in mystery rites. Percussion instruments such as clappers and tambourines are associated with Kybele or Dionysus. Bull roarers, together with drums, produce roaring sounds resembling thunder both deafening and frightening. 
Double flutes, aoloe, are especially noteworthy. These instruments were so unanimously considered trance-inducing that their name produced a verb, kataolein, to cast a spell, literally to cause trance by means of an aulos. And Aristotle observes that aoloi are appropriate for enthusing the listener with ecstasy. So to be kataolose is to be influted, consumed, infused with the hum of the trance. Quote, In the tumult of their rites, says Socrates, the corubantiontes hear only the sound of the double flute, which re-echoes within them, rendering them deaf to all other sounds. And Iamblichus says, Quote, they hear the flutes of the great mother inside their heads. The Korriban is in an ecstatic state. Such a person no longer perceives the human world. He is asleep with his eyes open somewhere else. He is taken beyond the limits of the social world. Like some panelepts, he is drawn to caves, wild thickets, springs. Something plucks him out of the city and goads him toward the realm of the goddess who possesses him. And... Specific musical scales were more trance-worthy than others. So, when Aristotle says that the Phrygian musical mode makes people enthusiastic, this can sound rather technical, and it needs to be revisited in the context of what enthusiasmos is and what the Phrygian mode sounds like. You've heard it in flamenco in the Middle Eastern devotional songs. The Phrygian mode leads to becoming catapulted into rapture. So there's music and dancing and revelry. But it's interesting, Dionysos almost always gets associated nowadays with partying, right? With some mad wine-soaked frenzy. And that may have been a part of it at times, but that's not the scope of what we're talking about here. The devotees of Dionysos were religious devotees who undertook great austerities, pain, deprivation, fasting, exposure, very similar to the ascetic ecstatics of India. Urban women who participated in the great wintertime festivals of Dionysus would wander alone in the wilderness for days as preparation, enduring fasting, freezing, finally gathering together for days of ceaseless ritual, group trance induction, unitive trance, which would cause them to move and act together like, quote, flocks of birds or hunting hounds. The dances of Dionysus were protracted and wild, but as Rouget says, quote, we have no reason to believe that the Dionysian dance was any less learned than other dances. It wasn't a free-for-all. And this again gets to outside views of trance looking in. My God, they've gone mad. It's a bunch of wild savagery. This is what urban elites or religious elites or scientific elites have always thought of trance ritual because they're not part of it. The worship of Dionysus, like all trance traditions, had strict protocols and laws and schedule events and festivals, and his ecstatic cults stretched from Greece all across Asia Minor, into Bactria, across the Oxus, and perhaps even to the Indus, perhaps even to India where it may be that he was born, or that he journeyed, or that he lived for a while. And his songs were sung across the deserts and steppes and river valleys by generations and generations and generations of people who we barely remember now. 
sung across a thousand years, embedded in the land and the rivers. And perhaps on certain nights, the valleys still echo with the cry, Aoi! Aoi! Perhaps there are still fragments of animal horn and old branches of winding ivy. Perhaps when I speak of it, your palate still recognizes the taste of milk and honey, the sound of thunder on the great green plain, the flash of summer lightning, the white moonlight on the desert hills of the Amudarya. Dionysus was trance itself, but all the gods were trance. There's been a predictable modern attempt to divide out, you know, the rational gods from, say, the primitive gods. And Dionysus is on one side and Apollo is on the other. You may have heard of this, the Apollonian and Dionysian archetypes, reason and order and light on one side and desire and feeling and darkness on the other. Nietzsche did this and it was picked up by others. And this ignores completely that the traditions of Apollo were inundated with felt trance and rapturous music. The Delphi cave was for Apollo. Apollo was sung to in rapture and his followers went into states of prophetic trance even though he ruled all things rational because reason and trance were not mutually exclusive. If Apollo is the musical, mathematic, harmonic luminosity of creation, then a prime way to behold and understand that harmony is through trance. Plato encourages the direct beholding of the geometry of creation. When Aristotle speaks of the value of the initiatory moment as a moment of comprehension beyond reason, it is recognizing that ultimately trance ritual is inherent and there is a great rationality to it even if the primary means of achieving it is not reason itself. And this is key to what we've forgotten. The fact that reason can help with the process of being human does not mean that all acts should be quote-unquote rational. They can't be. It means that there's a deep rationality. There is a deep reason to the process of the mystery schools, to take someone through an initiation that is about experience and not ideas to pass through the fire, to imbibe the sacred drink of the Eleusinian rites, to have breakthrough, a death of sorts, and a rebirth, and to enact that death and rebirth seasonally, and to do it with others, to be dancing in lockstep as it is done, as Plutarch would describe from the perspective of an initiate, quote, at first there was wandering and wearisome roaming, and some fearful journeys through unending darkness. And just before the telos, that means the end, the death experience, the initiation, there would be every sort of terror, shuddering and trembling and sweat and amazement. Out of these emerges marvelous light and pure places and meadows, followed after with voices and dances and solemnities of sacred utterances, and holy visions. I shudder with the erotic rapture of the mystery rite, says Aeschylus. Plato spoke of the initiation as the great death that makes the soul void of all the powers that once haunted it. The great death that makes the soul void of all the powers that once haunted it. And a jubilant chorus crowned with wreaths brings in new powers to hold sway thereafter. 
Apuleius described it like this, quote, I approached the frontier of death. I set foot on the threshold of Persephone. I journeyed through all the elements and came back. I saw at midnight the sun sparkling in white light. I came close to the gods of the upper and nether world, and I adored them from near at hand. Telos is initiation, and it's also death. It's a necessary passage of life. To pass into trance is required of us as humans. What would a human lifetime be without such initiation? What would it be without passing through, crossing over to the state of trance? What would be missing? What would elude us just out of reach? So, yes, all the gods were synonymous with trance rituals. Apollo was celebrated with trance, and Kybele, and Persephone, and Demeter, and Dionysus, and the local nymphs at all the local watering holes. But there's also one other god who we should not fail to mention. For in Greek thinking, failure to include him and give him his proper due can have dire consequences. One god who's more of an outlier, who lives deep in the Arcadian woods, who doesn't want to go anywhere near the cities, who infuses his devotees, and there were thousands upon thousands of them over centuries and centuries, infuses them with golden states of rapture, humming with dragonflies, with divine music, with the lulling sound of streams, with the force of life itself. Here are the words of one woman 2,500 years ago who listened to the swirling echoes within a sacred cave and was seized by the god Pan. From the inscription at Epidaurus, Pan, leader of the Naiad nymphs, I sing. Glory of the golden choruses, lord of lively song, from his far-sounding syrinx he pours the inspired charm of the sirens. To the melody he steps lightly, leaping through the well-shaded caves. The echo of your panic melody reaches as high as starry Olympus, pervading the gatherings of the gods with immortal song. All of earth and sea compound your grace, you are the mainstay of all. O Pan, Pan. Pan who governs what? Herds. As a shepherd playing on his pipe, he knows the right music to take the herd into sublime, idyllic states. And he also knows how, just like that, that deep state of groupthink and group feel can become something else, a state that still bears his name, panic. A panic was a particular type of trance, induced by the wild goatfoot god himself. And in fact, when Pan sought vengeance, which he usually did when careless urbanites and elites failed to remember to honor nature, it could take the form of mass panic. Pandemonium among the herd. So there's another way to see the chaos of the riot at the Capitol building. Perhaps when we fail to honor nature, through the appropriate offerings, ecstasies, songs, and trances, our longing for trance gets perverted. 
We seek, perhaps, pandemonium, a ripple effect of our fragmentation from nature, Pan's vengeance upon the herd. The herd who long ago lost its ability to find rapture through the sound of the flute and drum, and instead seeks it in brash calls of hatred, in banging the drums of war. You see, Pan gave us our chance. Long ago, 2,500 years ago, in fact, at the Battle of Marathon, it's ironic, given the shunning of trance states that soon followed, that in the very battle that was said to have saved Western civilization right at its start, Western civilization was saved by a goat-footed horned god who revels in trance states. For it was Pan who appeared to Phaedipides, the runner at Marathon, while in a trance. It was Pan who asked specifically that people not forget him and that he be given his due, a plea, perhaps, not to forget nature at the dawn of an age of increasing militarization. And it was Pan who then sent the Persians into a panic on the battlefield from which they never recovered. So perhaps civilizational narratives are more deeply intertwined with trance than we like to think. And perhaps the bargain that Pan cut with us at Marathon has long since been forsaken. I'd say so, since the island sanctuary that was built in his honor after the Battle of Marathon is now a sewage treatment facility. Perhaps we are still living with the ramifications of this today. For the failure to recognize the god in nature, the Pantheos, dooms us to panic. And so we mire in pandemonium when we could be reveling in cascades of rapture, in the light-footed step of nature who is the source of all good trances. When did people begin to distrust trance? By the time of the late Roman Empire, there was a general distaste among the elites for trance. And distrust of trance, as Aaron Reich points out, tends to be historically an elitist stance. The distrust of trance generally has a lot to do with power. Because trance is power. If a person can become engodded themselves without intermediaries, if a person can see clearly into the nature of things without the state or church to explain the world to them, if a community can find and reinforce its bonds with a common vision that is created in common sweat and rapture, those bonds are strong. When we look at something like the history of the Christian church's repression of trance states, there's sometimes a tendency to put the blame on Christianity and therefore Christ. And Christ isn't the issue. Ancient Christianity reveled in trance states. What do you think Jesus was doing in his 40 days in the desert? John the Baptist lived immersed in nature and fed off the honey of trance. The Gnostics' entire ritualized life was based around rapture. And the foundational prophecies of the Hebraic prophets were universally trance-induced. Trance and early Christianity got along just fine. As Ehrenreich says, quote, Early Christian services were ecstatic, noisy, charismatic affairs. The very reason early Christianity survived was that it was populist, non-exclusive, steeped in ecstasy. And then something shifts. And that shift has a whole lot to do with the church part of the equation as opposed to the Christian part. It has to do with managing people and managing states of consciousness and being increasingly removed from nature. It has to do with literacy and class divide 
and the growing dominance of worldviews that favor abstraction and ideation over felt experience. For where does the trembling candomblé dancer fit into a world in which God is an abstract principle that acts through concepts and ideas? Where does the trance medium, the hairs on her neck bristling, fit into a world in which God is far away and in which material is monstrous? Starting in the 4th century, the church cracks down on ecstatic dancing, especially by women. Gregory of Nazianzus issues an edict encouraging solemnity and modesty. And here again we see that the elite vision of spirituality sees itself as higher than the oral folk traditions. As Judith Becker says, quote, Rationality, restraint, and intellectualization lead one to spiritual development, not the messy, unruly, and always contestable ecstatic trances of the mystics, end quote. So edicts popped up about the questionable practice of worship in groves and among trees. The church grudgingly tolerated the fact that Dionysus never really went away until about the early 8th century. And then when they took a good look and saw that the leopard-riding god was still howling in the backwoods of Christendom, when they saw that Dionysian rituals were still embedded in Christian populism, they issued a decree specifically against wearing animal hides and calling the name Dionysus. What followed was over a thousand years of vilification of trance in Western civilization, so that by the time colonial powers much, much later on encounter ecstatic trance practices in, say, every culture they come across, the colonists are so far removed from trance that they don't even recognize it anymore. As Ehrenreich says, quote, equally jarring to European sensibilities was the almost ubiquitous practice of ecstatic ritual in which the natives would gather to dance, sing, or chant to a state of exhaustion, and beyond that, sometimes, trance. A missionary among the Fiji Islanders described such trance states as a horrible sight. Other words that were used were grotesque and hideous, and of course this grotesqueness was very much intertwined with European attitudes towards bodies that were brown and the savagery that that implied. Speaking out against ecstatic ritual, American political scientist Frederick Morgan Davenport said this, and this is difficult, but it's important in understanding basic colonial attitudes towards trance states that infused both religion and science. Frederick Morgan Davenport said, quote, the last thing the superstitious and impulsive Negro race needs is a stirring of the emotions, end quote. So, yeah, Puritans meet voodoo, a society that has repressed its basic need for ecstatic ritual for a thousand years stumbles upon living, moving spirit. One anthropologist watched as total possession swept through a room full of Brazilian candomblé practitioners, quote, the drums had been instigating me to cross a threshold that I cannot or dare not cross. Beyond it, I imagined, lies madness, the annihilation of self, a black hole. To stare into the abyss has always been frightening, but an opportunity sits there, an opportunity to embrace annihilation and see things from a totally new point of view. And as in so many other cases, the historical response was not to dive into the yawning maw of the unknown, but to try to eradicate it instead. Quote, 
All through European colonial Africa, trance ritual practiced by men and women was repressed. Its practitioners burned, hanged. Napoleon Bonaparte instigated an effort to eradicate voodoo in Haiti. Portuguese colonial authorities harassed and suppressed the candomblé. And what could possibly explain the fact that so many cultures, so many peoples, everyone really, it seemed, except for modern, urban, elite Europeans, sought regular ritualized access to ecstatic states? Well, of course, it must have been a defect. It must be demonic, said the church. It must be a medical problem, said science. And this is very important. Right from the start, modern science has been blind to its own biases in relation to trance. What do I mean? Let's follow the timeline. First, it was proposed among scientific circles that natives who practiced trance had a different nervous system than Europeans, a savage mind that was more vulnerable to irrational influence because they probably only had a mass of spinal ganglia instead of a higher brain. By the 1850s, Anne Harrington tells us in her paper on the history of trance states, a new generation of theorizers like Jean-Martin Charcot in Paris quote, drew links between the trances of hypnosis and hysteria on the one side and medieval descriptions of demonic possession and religious ecstasy on the other. All of this was undertaken with the goal of demonstrating that these ecstatic states were undiagnosed cases of hysteria, whose experiences had no meaning outside of their pathology. Yeah, Charcot basically coined the term hysteria. It was a defect that mostly applied to women, hence the name hysteria related right to the uterus. As Christina Mazzoni points out in her book Saint Hysteria, which I highly recommend, Charcot saw, quote, mystical ecstasy as a gender-specific neurotic manifestation. And through the lens of Charcot, the trance of the ancient Greek Mayanads, the 3,000 years of mystery rites, the priestesses of Ifa, the entire foundational basis of sub-Saharan African religious tradition, the candomblé dancers enraptured with the vibrant force of the queen of the waters and the winds, the spirit mediums ridden by the lion rider across Himachal Pradesh, the Bhutanese yoginis leaping their skulls into states of vast absorption, tarantists of Sicily dancing all night and day into exhausted bliss, all of it to Charcot would be neatly categorized as hysteria. And of course, start looking at the world through that lens, and you'll see hysteria everywhere. Which is why the scientific consensus in 19th century Paris, and I'm not joking here, was that, quote, 50% of Parisian women were hysterical. Here's where it gets really weird. Charcot even had a troop of mental patients, all women, who would act out their hysteria publicly every Tuesday so that people could watch enraptured. And there's a perfect example of how a society that vilifies trance still needs its trance. It needs the hysterical other as a foil to its own proclaimed rationality. And Charcot wasn't considered a quack. His views shaped psychiatric attitudes towards women and towards ecstatic states for a very long time. So, as Ehrenreich says, right up to our own time, 
Even the most scientific and sympathetic observers have tended to view the ecstatic rituals of non-Western cultures with deep misgivings when they choose to view them at all. And Harrington tells us, quote, Even into the 1980s, there remained a widespread tendency to mingle cultural analyses with medical judgments and to see, for example, shamanistic trance behaviors as evidence of undiagnosed schizophrenia. Spirit possession remained closely tied in the thinking of many to hysteria. It might be possible to analyze the ways in which different societies made sense of trance in terms of their belief systems, but many outside those systems continued to regard the state as more pathological than not. Even the deeply sympathetic Lanternari described the ecstatic rites of colonized people as collective psychoses and a means of evasion. In a 1981 book on female ecstatics in Sri Lanka, another anthropologist judged that, quote, many of these women are, in a purely clinical sense, hysterical. As Aaron Reich puts it, quote, those practitioners of ecstatic ritual may have thought they were communing with the deities, building community solidarity, or even performing acts of healing, but in the eyes of Western psychology, they were only manifesting the symptoms of their illness. And this is where it's so hard to get those that are making these profound judgments out of the cultural lens through which they're seeing the situation. This is where it seems obvious to those paying attention that the issue is not with the 90 plus percent of human cultures for whom trance is a necessary, structured, and lived reality, but with those who would pathologize ecstasy. Where does the pathology actually lie? As Aaron Reich asks, quote, how can civilization be regarded as a form of progress if it precludes something as distinctly human and deeply satisfying as the collective joy of ecstatic ritual? Writers and thinkers and social critics have paid a lot of attention recently to the ramifications of our separation from nature. There are dozens of books and studies that discuss the effects of no longer living in tight-knit communities. We talk about the loss of the nuclear family. We talk about the rise of industrialization, of no longer sourcing locally, of our environmental footprint. But what about the ramifications of the loss of ecstatic ritual? June McDaniel says it very succinctly in her book, Lost Ecstasy. Quote, Western culture lacks tolerance for ecstasy, and it suffers as a result. And Aaron Reich says, quote, We pay a high price for this emotional emptiness. Individually, we suffer from social isolation and depression. Collectively, we seem to have trouble coming to terms with our situation, which grows more ominous every day. But we remain for the most part paralyzed, lacking the means or will to organize for our survival. Psychologist Robert A. Johnson writes that the alienation that motivates addiction and other such social pathologies is due to the lack of access to ecstasy in modern society. Quote, Ecstasy was once considered a favor of the gods, a divine gift that could lift mortals out of the ordinary reality and into a higher world. The transformative fire of ecstasy would burn away the barriers between ourselves, bestowing on us a greater understanding of our relation to ourselves and to the universe. It is the great tragedy of contemporary Western society that we have virtually lost the ability to experience the transformative power of ecstasy. This loss affects every aspect of our lives. We seek ecstasy. And this next part is key to understanding trance states and our relationship with them in the modern world. You've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again. When the positive aspects of ecstasy are excluded, people turn to more negative ones. 
As the psychologist Mahali Sizant Mahali, famous for his book on the flow state, writes, When people cannot find a state of flow in a positive way, they turn to the intense enjoyment of danger and random violence. McDaniel speaks of the dark side of flow. The lack of flow, leaving activities that lack meaning, can make life impoverished or in some cases evoke violence as its antidote. Violence up to and including mass pandemonium, social movements that thrive on brutality and war. One of the most well-known articles on the ecstasy of war was written by William Broyles Jr. in the November 1984 issue of Esquire magazine. It was called Why Men Love War. Quote, War may be the only way in which most men touch the mythic domains in our soul. It is for men at some terrible level the closest thing to what childbirth is for women, the initiation into the power of life and death. It is like lifting off the corner of the universe and looking at what's underneath. War brings about ecstatic states because of its life-or-death intensity. War stops time and intensifies experience to the point of a terrible ecstasy. The solidarity that people find in supremacist movements is fueled by a type of misdirected trance. Hitler, as I mentioned recently in the episode on Reason, was known for his frenzied rallies that induced trance states. Lindholm says, quote, Hitler strove to turn all of Germany into a gigantic and permanent mass meeting awaiting his galvanizing appearance. A recent article entitled How White Supremacy is Like a Drug explored the trance states that come with highly emotionalized group bonding. It quotes a study from scholars who interviewed 89 former members of white supremacist organizations, finding that their identification allows them to feel outside of themselves and part of a larger being. Listen to how close this is to one of the original definitions of trance we explored in this episode. To feel the merger of the individual self with something larger. Ecstasy, to stand outside oneself. Quote, identity in this view becomes a dopamine activator, and this is particularly true of a collective identity formed by marginalized insular groups that cultivate strong emotions. So, we will find ways to get our trance on. We need trance states. We pursue them even unconsciously. Trance states continue to be one of the primary forces shaping our world. Which is why we have to be careful about continuing to either deliberately or inadvertently pathologize mystic states, to lump all spirituality in with quackery, to assume that if it's not rational, it's not necessary, or even it's dangerous. Because, mark my words, trance states are always going to have a whole lot of social capital. Trance states are a huge part of how the people process and express and make bonds. Trance states heal. Trance and trauma have a very close relationship, and if our only way of processing trauma is clinical-medical rather than ritual-ecstatic, then we're missing out on how most cultures actually deal with trauma. Trance is a large part of innate human knowing. You know, the human knowing that doesn't need a scientific study to tell you that time in the forest is good for you. So this is where it's important to ask ourselves, what's the source of our trance? Where do we seek alterity? Because Trust me, we all seek it. What are we looking to to hold our attention? What are we looking to to deliver insight to us? What are we looking to to take us into that state in which we feel expanded, larger than ourselves? Where are we finding wonder? Where are we finding release? Where are we finding breakthrough? Where are we seeking trance? Where are we establishing these ecstatic bonds? Is it 
the phone, the drink, the scroll, the subgroup, the news feed, the game, the rabbit hole, the false guru, the charlatan, the cue. Because, and this is a good exploration to conclude with, there's a difference. There's a qualitative difference in types of trance states. And this mostly depends on what the source of the trance is. There's a very simple statement from a Bengali trance practitioner that's quoted in June McDaniel's book that's really important. It says, quote, The person who has been taken by this divine bhava will see the object of his worship all around wherever they look. So as we consider trance states that drive people into battle, trance states that drive us all to be hypnotized by our phones, trance states that drive us to follow false prophets, there's a simple delineation being suggested here. Where is it guiding me? In what direction is it taking me? Is it taking me towards seeing the object of worship, the divine in all things, the interconnectedness of all creation? Or is it taking me to the place of vilification, stupefaction, the sacrifice of attention for relentless monetization, hypnotization, hypnotized nation? The Greeks and Indians would have made a delineation around which gods were involved. You know, your capital riot trance is the pandemonium of Pan. Your QAnon trance might just be Pan too, another side of Pan. You know, the story of Pan in which he chased after Echo and went into a berserk, confused, stumbling trance, chasing after something that he thought he heard, chasing an echo of an echo of an echo. How much of the current stupor we see in the world is this? What was it that we were chasing again? The wandering trance, the scrolling trance, the endless spell of Tantalos reaching for eternal water just out of reach. Different trance states have different qualities, the ancients say, depending on their source. Certain places are more conducive to disruptive trances than others. Different nature spirits have different possessing qualities. Talkativeness, ebullience, well, that must be a water spirit trance, of course. There's even an Indian text that describes a certain type of trance whose primary symptom is a distrust of medical professionals. So, the next time you encounter a COVID denier on the internet, have pity. Because, you know, they might have been possessed by a yaksha. But... The good trance, the true rapture, the needed and sought ecstasy, is that which causes us to experience interconnectedness, that allows us to see the good shining through in all things, that reveals to us that all is sacred and should be treated as such. So let's ask ourselves, what is the source of our trance? What trance rituals do we engage in in our daily lives without even thinking about it? What is our community of trance? What are the values of this community? But let's not turn our backs on trance. For a society that does this faces the stark ramifications of a loss of ecstasy. As Ehrenreich mourns, close your ears to the ever fainter sounds of drums or pipes. The danced ritual belongs to a distant time. The manads are long dead, a curiosity for the classicists. Forget the past which is half imagined anyway and get back to work. And yet, it does not go away, this ecstatic possibility. Despite centuries of repression, 
ecstatic ritual keeps bubbling up and in the most unlikely places. My call is for us to remember trance, the gifts it brings, the insights, for that bubbling up to be the healthy flow of remembered ritual as opposed to the pressure cooker of panic and pandemonium, to have all the structures of accountability and love in place so that we can feel and know our way into right relationship with the world, so that we approach the frontier of death, we set foot on the threshold of Persephone, we see at midnight the sun sparkling in white light, we emerge into the dawn meadows where all our friends are wreathed in crowns of flowers and singing the old familiar songs and beckoning us, beckoning us to join the circle and to dance. This episode contains reference to many books, songs, movies, websites, articles, all of it. And these include Divine Mania, Alteration of Consciousness in Ancient Greece by Yulia Ustinova, The Cult of Pan in Ancient Greece by Philippe Bourgeot, Phaedrus and Eon, both by Plato, How White Supremacy is Like a Drug by Matthew Wills writing in JSTOR, Thinking About Trance Over a Century, The Making of a Set of Impasses, Anne Harrington, The Hunter's Trance by Carl von Essen, Ancient Mystery Cults by Walter Burkert, Boiling Energy by Richard Katz, Amazing Grace, the film starring a young Aretha Franklin, The Madness of the Saints and Lost Ecstasy, both by June McDaniel, the Self-Possessed, Deity and Spirit Possession in South Asian Literature and Civilization by Frederick Smith. Dancing in the Streets by Barbara Ehrenreich. And if you're going to read one book coming out of this episode, it's a very relatable, very readable book, and I highly recommend it. Dancing in the Streets. And the author's name, again, is Barbara Ehrenreich. Jhanas in Theravada Buddhist Meditation by Hanapola Gunaratna. Flow by Mahali Sazent Mahali. Saint Hysteria by Christina Mazzoni. Circling Around the Really Real. Spirit Possession Ceremonies and the Search for Authenticity and by Ian Condomble by Matisse Vanderport. The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. Dune, the upcoming film from Denis Villeneuve starring Timothy Chalamet in a futuristic world in which interstellar space travel is made possible through rapturous visioning while in a spice-induced trance. And special thanks to Max Brumberg, who allowed me to use his beautiful flute music for the episode today. That's him playing the aulos, the double reed flute that was so present in ancient Greek trance traditions. If you want to check out Max's work, you can check out maxbrumbergflutes.eu, and Brumberg is B-R-U-M-B-E-R-G, and he hand-makes these amazing instruments. And special thanks also to Walker Barnard from Umasai for use of some dance beats in the episode. You can check out Walker's work at Umasai, that's U-M-A-S-A-I, and also thanks to Galen Passan for the wonderful sitar music that came in in certain parts, and Galen Passan is on Instagram at Galen Passen, one word, G-A-L-E-N-P-A-S-S-E-N. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. 
That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. 